Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Oh, holy, holy God, oh, you are worthy, Jesus Christ. We are yours. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your grace and mercy poured out on us for the forgiveness of our sins. And Lord, here we submit ourselves to you. Teach us your way of forgiveness. Fill Pastor Matt with your spirit. Direct him in all he's to teach us today. He has sought hard after you, Lord. And you have taught him. and You have given him a word for us to receive. To make our hearts ready. The soil fertile and ready to receive. The good news about forgiveness. Spoken to us. And your word given to us. Our daily food. Everything we need. You have everything we need. And we put our trust in you. Thank you. Amen. The scripture today is from Matthew 6, verses 7 to 15. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. As we were singing, I thought back about what it was like to talk to you people, some of you, not others, about forgiveness in 2014. It's when I, I my first day here was January 15th, 2014. And I'm going to say some of the same things I said that first year that I was here. But knowing some of you quite a bit better and the stories is absolutely humbling and an honor. Because many of you, probably all of you, but many of you have, have told me of the stories of who and why and how you have had to forgive. This is a room that has forgiven much because of Jesus. Jesus um, forgave. We see that when people come to him. He says it on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We see him restore Peter, which we'll look at in a little bit. Um, forgiveness is a release of the longing for the one who's harmed us to experience the pain that they caused us. It's a release uh, of our role in that to implement and execute justice. It's a release of, in our imagination, their uh, demise or downfall. One of my professors said, forgiveness is not desiring another's ruin, which then leads to desiring their good. It, forgiveness in the scriptures is not separate from or in conflict with justice. 
One of the reasons I'm talking slowly is because um, the church has gotten this wrong a lot. Instead of forgiveness moving in concert with justice, which is how it's supposed to work, instead of forgiveness working in concept or in, in concert with relational restoration, it's put forward as though it accomplishes more than perhaps it can. A friend asked me last year, or a friend shared with me last year, not someone in the church, lives in the state, about a statue of limitations in the state she was abused in. And I just listened. And you know, I gotta be honest, I think my 30-year-old self might have started talking with her about forgiveness. And I now think that that's inappropriate. First of all, she knows me. She knows I'm a Christian pastor. She's a Christian. If she wants to talk about what it means to forgive, I would be happy to talk about that. But that doesn't have to be part of every conversation about that. It is essential that she forgive because that's part of the with God life. That's part of us releasing the pollutants and toxins that we create, that other people put on us, that exist in the world. But sometimes we're flippant or trite or unhelpful in the way we talk about these things. Oh, it is working. Awesome. Forgiveness is a life and death move. When we forgive, it is a move of life. It's a move of resisting a move of death. It's unclear whether it was Princess Leia or Anne Lamott that said, unforgiveness is like drinking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. I've seen it attributed to both Carrie Fisher and Anne Lamott. At one point, Jesus is uh, accused of his, when he's performing miracles, people are saying he's doing that because he's um, involved with the evil one, with Beelzebul. And in that particular instance, Jesus talks about the one unforgivable sin. Did you know there's an unforgivable sin? Scared me as a kid, although it scared me in a bad way, so I like tried it. I tried to like commit that unforgivable sin, see what would happen. Made a lot of bad decisions as a kid. That's what, that was one of them. The unforgivable sin is a life, birth to death, of rejecting Christ's lordship and work. Day, with every day, with every thought, with word and deed, active rejection of him, which should actually comfort us. Because you're either questioning that actively or passively, or you're a follower of Christ. That actually should give you some assurance. Sometimes when we talk about forgiveness, we talk about it like it's nice. There's nothing nice about absorbing the pain that someone else caused you rather than exacting vengeance. It's painful. It's way better than the alternative, but it's not sweet. It requires a great deal of faith and internal strength, which comes from the Holy Spirit, which is why one of the times that Jesus taught on forgiveness, the disciples said, Lord, increase our faith, because they knew what a tall order that it was. Forgiveness is an inbreaking of heaven in a world of nihilistic lust and violence and injustice. 
It is one of the most beautiful things that you offer to the world. And it is not simple or easy or trite. In Matthew chapter 26, before Jesus went to the cross, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him. Oh, I picked the wrong scripture. Jesus predicted this would happen. I mean, I'm referencing this on purpose, but I meant to read the section where Jesus predicted that this would happen. He said, all of you will fall away. And Peter said, not me, because he was passionate. And then this happens. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and she saw... She said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth, and again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When Jesus describes to the disciples this is going to happen, he doesn't say, and, and don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. He doesn't say, and then I'll come back and restore you, though he's going to, and we'll talk about that in a minute. It's beautiful. That denial was painful for Peter. Jesus' knowledge of it, I think, was painful for him as well. He lets Peter, Peter experience that pain. He forgives and restores him because he is a restorer. You see him restore dead people to life. You see him restore calm amidst the storm. We see him restore sight to the blind. When he restores a leper, it's not only from disease into health, it's also back into community because the lepers were isolated. This is what Jesus does. He restores those alienated from God and doesn't just unalienate us. He now calls us his children. And forgiveness is part of the new life God is bringing into the world through us. Most of the cultures of the world could be categorized as a shame and honor culture. Some people argue that our current moment is inverting that, that shame is the new honor. This is absolutely rejecting and offering an alternative to that. When Jesus says we not only forgive our brothers and sisters, but our enemies all those made in the image of God are worthy of... Oh, that's not right. Now, all those... Oh, give me a second. Now, we forgive because they're made in the image of God and no one is without sin. And it is the way of life given to us in the midst of our sin and the brokenness of the world and others' sin against us. Verses 14 and 15 that Mandy read, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's not talking about whether you're saved. That's an emphasis of verse 12. Verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It's a very, very strongly worded statement of people who know that they're forgiven much forgive also. Last week we talked about the parable of the unforgiving servant, and I didn't adjust it for inflation. Some of you probably noticed that. My study Bible, which estimates that the, the 
um, servant was forgiven six billion. Eleven years later, I think, is that translation? Let's call it seven. Let's call it seven billion. And he forgave about 12,000. Just that for, let's call it 18. The unforgiving servant, it's a very, very eerie parable where God is likened to a pagan king who's both merciful and then violent. Not because God is like that, but because our debt to him is great. And there Jesus is emphasizing that those who have been forgiven much also forgive. He isn't trite about it. The lack of forgiveness, what it, what it does in us is it harms us and it harms neighbor. Our relationship with God is never at stake, and yet our sense of our relationship with him is at stake. When we don't forgive, we're less and less assured of his love. We're less confident of who he calls us to be in the world. That's how dangerous it is. A lack of forgiveness is a wildly disintegrating thing to ourself and to others. When we confess our sin, he restores us with new life because he is a restorer. And when you forgive, listen to me very carefully, when you forgive, nothing has changed in the trust dynamic with the person that you forgive. That's a different matter. Very important to the restoration or the recreation or the mending of a relationship. There's, there's thousands of Bible verses about those because relationships are essential. But in forgiveness, maybe more space is made for trust to be restored, but trust is not restored immediately. It's very important that we notice that right before the parable of the unforgiving servant, Jesus talks about how we're supposed to do conflict, and he speaks very mundanely and very practically about being wise in conflict with one another. I almost started this sermon with, no matter what I say today, don't call that person without checking in with a wise friend. Because sometimes that's how a sermon like this can come across. If there's unforgiveness in your life, you need to forgive immediately. You may not need to ever call that person. And I would strongly recommend that you don't do so today without talking with someone else that could help you with it. I'm not saying don't go after them relationally. I'm saying be wise about it. Jesus forgave and he restored because that's who he is. He comes back to Peter when they had finished breakfast. Jesus said to him, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because they said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Peter sinned in denying Jesus three times. Jesus goes to him, has a meal with him, spends time with him, cooks him breakfast, and then restores him three times because that's who he is. For us, we forgive immediately, but then we are wise 
in going back towards the relationship. This is right before the parable of the unforgiving service. I didn't, I didn't realize these sections of scripture were right next to each other. I burst out of my office today trying to see Lida was there and Will, and I'm like, do you realize these are right next to each other? They were like, yes. <laughs> it was anticlimactic for me. The reason, though, that I'm pointing this out is we are... We are way too quick to think that forgiveness means everything's fine now. And in doing that, we both cheapen forgiveness, which is essential, and don't succeed in rebuilding trust. Here, and, and the reason I say that Jesus speaks so mundanely here is both because he does, but also because so often in Matthew, he's waving his rhetorical arms and his preaching genius to help us understand the dangers of sin. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It would be better for you if a millstone were tied around your neck if you lead one of these astray. Wow, that's rough language. And then here he speaks very mundanely. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Meaning, stop trying. Was, Je- was Jesus cool with Gentiles? Yes. Was he cool with tax collectors? So much so he was called a glutton and a drunkard. But he's saying stop pursuing them after a few times. And I'm not sure why we disconnect relational encouragement with the spiritual command to forgive, but I don't think it's helpful. Jesus forgave and restored as a model because what he's teaching us is that there's an integrated life available to us where our eyes are under his lordship. For those of us who are married, our marriages are under his lordship. I'm going through the categories of the Lord's Prayer. Our hands are under his lordship and given to him. And that means that when people sin against us, we release them of our desire for vengeance. When you forgive, it is a beautiful move of love to one who has acted like an enemy to you. It's an utter rejection of any kind of shame or honor culture. It is a move of will and prayer and repetition and then maybe emotions. Your emotion, this is hard for me to say because I'm an emotional person, but it's true. This is where our mind actually leads our emotions and our emotions will catch up. That person that you have to forgive repeatedly, you probably don't feel like forgiving them. Your feelings will catch up with your mind that's obeying Christ. I was talking with someone after the first service, and she said it was incredibly helpful to me to pray, Lord, help me to want to forgive them. I said, yeah, that's a bridge between the mind choosing to follow Christ and the emotions connecting with the beauty of releasing them from that pain. Do you know how desperately you need to learn to forgive and to practice it? The Gottman Institute that studies communication in marriage and marriage says that 70% of your disagreements are actually unresolvable. Which is the worst news. Unless 
forgiveness is active part of our relationships. Some of you are like, 70% seems low. (laughs) That's how desperately we need to follow Jesus as he commands forgiveness. You guys know the street artist Banksy? Yeah, he's been in the Ukraine. Put up at least seven of his installations. When you forgive, it's like that. It is a small act of heavenly beauty. Small as the world would esteem it, but beautiful in a war-torn landscape of vengeance and retributive relationship. Every once in a while I hear people say, they just need to forgive. And I'm like, you're cheapening both sides of that. Forgiveness is not small, but it's so good and beautiful. That's the life-giving life of Christ in you to others. Jesus forgave and he restored as a model and a command of life. And this command has been misunderstood and horrifically misapplied to block justice instead of working in concert with it. We've seen this. If you've ever read uh, Corey Tinboom when she was preaching the gospel and one of the men that murdered her sister came and commended her and he wanted to shake her hand. And her description of how hard it was to shake his hand is beautiful. She asked the Lord and he strengthened her to do it. It was not easy. It was not trite. It's not just forgiveness. That's the beautiful life-giving life we offer. When Rachel Den Hollander forgave Larry Nasser after he had been convicted of his abuse in the United States gymnastic team. It's beautiful and goes in concert with justice. When Jesus commands us to forgive, that's first judicial. It is not ours to exact vengeance on that person. Then it's emotional forgiveness where we both don't imagine their ruin and we do imagine their good. And that, for many of you, will take repetition and prayer and intellectual energy. And then it'll take all that again in an hour. Then we consider the relationship. I've spent all week arguing with some of my heroes who want to tie these things together quickly. One of the reasons that I will not tie forgiveness to relationship restoration quickly is power imbalances. Forgiving your boss is different than forgiving a coworker than forgiving a direct report. If you're a teacher and your principal sins against you, forgiving your principal is different than forgiving a fellow teacher, than forgiving a student, than forgiving a parent. All of those power structures work differently. This is why wounds from our childhood often stick with us because of the power imbalance that makes forgiveness essential 
and creates a question about the restoration of relationship. Is it going to be a restored relationship? Sometimes when we're sinned against, we realize it's a different relationship than the one we actually thought we had. Sometimes it's a welded relationship where the breach is repaired and the two metals actually become stronger together around the breach. Is that how welding works? Those of you that know, it is, right? Somebody gave me this analogy and I was like, that's brilliant, but I've never welded anything. Perhaps it's a new relationship. Perhaps the relationship wasn't true or good to begin with. And after the sin and the repentance and the forgiveness, you realize a new relationship is possible. And forgiveness creates space for us to then wisely move back towards people. But before that is the emphasis that we must forgive because that's life. That's how we release our own toxins and toxins other people put on us and live as people of God, rejecting and any kind of honor and shame culture, instead treating all as made in the image of God because we have been forgiven so much. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your forgiveness purchased by Jesus. And we thank you that it restores us to you because that's who you are and what you did. Holy Spirit, we ask for strength in our families, in places of business, and in all other communities. Would you strengthen us to forgive and then to be wise in the growth of those relationships. Would you help our church to be one of quick forgiveness and wise relationships and conflict? We look forward to the day that you roll sin away from the world. In between now and then, comfort us and assure us in your love as we follow you in all things. Amen.